we are beginning to see the idea of collaboration in in the industry, in particular publishing and media, beginning to sort of realize that maybe they have a com- that these aggregators are sort of the common enemy. I think there's there's a lot less sort of naivety now around the intentions of Google and, and Facebook, etc. When when it comes to sort of eating the advertising pie and and also moving beyond that right into e-commerce, etc. So hopefully the world is also a bit less blue-eyed now. An entrepreneur at school and university, an innovator in digital branded content, founder and CEO of Biblio, and an attention economy thought leader is this week's guest, Mads Holman. In this episode, Danish-born, London-based Mads discusses his parents' contribution and the impact of the Italian educational philosophy Reggio Emilia on his self-belief and his curiosity, and also how serendipity directed his entrepreneurial journey. We then dive deep as Mads shares his insights on the challenges we face in our attention economy, the current reality of AI on our digital media behaviour, the negative societal impact of attention-driving algorithms, and he articulates with clarity how we can counter the duopolistic stranglehold of Google and Facebook. Mads also explains how his company Biblio is creating a pathway for publishers to increase audiences and revenues without the use of invasive and irrelevant advertising technology. And we discuss the imperative for a code of ethics to govern AI development. We also cover his principles, influences, and where he goes to discover new ideas, and of course, his impossible advice. I hope you enjoy this thought-provoking, distraction-free, and practical perspective on the attention economy with Mads Holman. Well, first of all, thank you for being on the show, Mads. It's great to be here in London with you at your office. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I'd like to start, before we talk about your childhood and your upbringing and the impact of that, I will actually acknowledge here that serendipity, which is at the core of what the Impossible Network is about, led to the happy accident of actually meeting you. Elaine and myself had gone to a a WordPress meetup one weekend in September, and we're about to go home and thought, well, let's go for the after meetup drinks. And there we were waiting for the drinks at the bar and standing next to me, looking slightly out of place for Koreatown Karaoke Bar in New York, was Robert, your head of events for Biblio. And we got talking and thought, wow, this is really cool. I love this technology and, and what this recommendation engine that you're building is all about. And that's why we're sitting here today. Serendipity brought us Ser- here. Exactly. And yeah. Rob. And Rob, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Rob, Rob yeah, does, well, take, it, yeah. Uh, he does take serendipity very seriously. Well, let's, let's not even go to the karaoke and what happened later that night. But uh, there you go. That's for another, that's for another podcast. But thanks very much, Mads, for being on the show. So let's start with, uh, before we get into your entrepreneurial journey, and your life, I'd like to understand a bit more about your childhood, where you grew up, uh, your parental support, and their guidance or direction, how it affected or helped you on your journey and where you are today, um, and the impact your parents had on your self-belief. So, a lot, lot in there, but yep. just um, no, go, that's go fine. for it. And, and I think actually there is an interesting story there. So I was, I was born about an hour outside of Copenhagen. I spent the first two years um, there in a little, little town called Holbeck. Don't remember much of that, to be honest. And then, long story short, my um, my parents split up. And my mom moved to Copenhagen and brought me with me. I, again, I don't really remember any of this. And it sort of turned out to be uh, one of those lucky cases of just getting two families instead of one. Um, so within six months, they were both remarried, etc. And that's sort of where, I guess, memories start to come in. Um, so for, for all I care, I grew up in Copenhagen. And, and I mean, growing up in Copenhagen is a bit like growing up in, in the world's butterhole, right? I mean, th- there's really very little. Um, if you want anything dangerous, you have to go and find it yourself, really. 
Well, unless you're going to hang out with Christiane on a Friday night, maybe. Yeah, but even then, I mean, you'd struggle to actually do anything dangerous. And so if you sort of go into the parental side, on, on my mom's side, both my mom and stepdad uh, works in childcare and child education. So I'm maybe a little bit flavored here. Oh, okay. um, it, I'll, I'll try to be sort of as objective as possible, but I think there's no doubt that that obviously had an impact on, on my upbringing. I, I guess I was sort of brought up by professionals mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, to a certain degree. And, and in particular, actually, to what you're, what you were asking about here, they practice a particular sort of Italian pedagogy called Reggio Emilia, which is all about self-belief and oh, sort of a constructive pedagogy, uh, similar to Montessori. Can you just say that term again? It's called Reggio Emilia. I guess the sort of main philosophy, like a lot of the kind of progressive Italian sort of pedagogies, is really is really about building. The, the, the sort of education around self-belief and confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and actually sort of the idea, I guess, that a lazy example would be, you know, let's say the child is really into to cycling. You know, there's only so far you can actually go in cycling until you have to start to learn a bit of physics and a bit of math and a bit of... So it's sort of the idea that you can bring all the other things in around interests and passions, and mm-hmm. but, but without confidence, you don't get anywhere. So I, I think it's fair enough to say that I was a relatively sort of confident child and I blame my mother for that because she very much did her best to to instill that I think and just before you go on how do you spell that um, Italian term um r-e-g-g r-e-g-g yeah i-o i-o yeah. and then e-m e-m i i l-i-a are you familiar with it which is actually a region in Italy Reggio Emilia yeah but so it's named after the region actually but it's one of those sort of very progressive pedagogies that was sort of done in the early 20th century. First time I'm hearing about this. I mean, so I guess Montessori is the more famous right. kind of sibling to that. Reggio Emilia works predominantly with slightly younger kids, so, mm-hmm. so sort of one to four so or five. what type of, when you said that you practiced it and instilled in you yourself, what were the methodologies and the, the actual day-to-day The day-to-day work. Well, I guess the... the one of the beauty is you obviously don't realize that as that a child, right? You. Yes, yeah. it, you're sort of just living through it, right? But, I, I, you know, I have memories of sitting with sort of pans and, and oat grains and whatever out over the whole kitchen table and being allowed to sort of make all the dishes dirty, et cetera, because I was cooking, right? And no one would ever dream of stopping me from doing that. So I think I, I remember food is an interesting example. I remember being three, four years old, sort of helping my mom with, with cutting vegetables and stuff. And I think in a lot of homes maybe even more so today, there isn't really time for that, right? Because it isn't very effective to have a four-year-old helping with, with cooking. But, yeah. but actually, the skills you gain and the confidence you gain from being a part of what's going on, I, I think. So I'm most grateful, really, for them taking the time to sort of let me be involved in, in things that, in many ways, were way beyond my, my age and capabilities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, I mean, leaving aside the fact that it was in, in Denmark, but just having the ability to learn and develop your sense of identity through play, but also having the freedom to explore, to make mistakes in a safe environment is something that I think a lot of parents struggle with today, partly because of the safe environment being the only place they consider safe as a home, but often safety is in front of the television or the iPad, which is probably isn't good for the child's long-term development and identity. And, and, also and I should turn to say mine was a lot more active than that. There was, there yeah. was a lot of activities going on okay. and I was so going to a lot of museums. And, and a lot, lot of outdoor activities yeah, as yeah, well. all of that. Yeah. Um, so as an example, my stepdad actually used to arrange these tours in the summer to Sweden, to the mountains. So I remember being four 
being gone for 10 days on a yeah. on a tent trip in the north of Sweden, right? With and because it was in the summer holiday, they basically had to bring me. So I was together with kids that were sort of six to ten, and, mm-hmm. and I was four and a half, right? Running around in this mountain in Sweden. So so yeah, I think all of those things are are extremely true. And I think, you know, even to the point where why my father would sometimes blame my mother for instilling me with too much confidence <laughs> <laughs> um, and too much sort of he can never be wrong, which which you can then sort of begin to reflect on when you get a little bit older. But being a yeah. child, it was brilliant. You're a rebel teenage yeah, years. Yeah, that happens, doesn't it? And what, and what about your um, siblings? That's sort of another byproduct of, of, of this wonderful sort of modern family construction. So my stepdad had two children already that are seven and ten years older than me. But they were living with us for, for most of the time. So they're really... You know, my, my big brother and sister, although we're not actually technically blood related at all. Um, but they've obviously been in my life since I was two. So I can't really remember anything else. And um, and then my dad remarried and had two that are strangely seven and ten years younger than me. So I'm technically my parents' only child, but I have four brothers and sisters. So, yeah, you, you work don't, out and, and therefore you don't suffer from the only child syndrome. I, I mean... As my dad would still say, yes, my mom managed to sort of do that because I'm technically her only <laughs> yeah. child. So I think there's there's maybe an element of that on my mom's side. But but no, certainly had to reflect in a pretty young age over this idea of, you know, there's also being other people, yeah. et cetera. And, you know, when I went to my dad's, um, there was obviously children, et cetera. And, and also because my bigger siblings were that much older, they, they had children quite early. So I became a, a, an uncle pretty early as well. So I think there's kind of always been children around in that sense. Okay. Um, we always ask a question, um, I guess, about the most defining moment or memory from their childhood. Is there anything that springs to mind for you? I was reflecting on it and, and I must say it didn't sort of immediately spring other than sort of like a lot of happy memories. And, and I think quite a few of them I've probably been told by my family afterwards, which is kind of why I remember them. And I think there was one that my grandmother keeps, keeps telling me when I was about four that, when I was sort of sitting at her lab at Christmas and, um, and and was sort of commenting on the fact that my parents had got divorced and said, you know, but grandmother, that just means I have four mothers and fathers, right? And I think in, in many ways that probably says more about the, the sort of environment and atmosphere around me, which which I'm very grateful for. But But in terms of sort of a defining moment, I do remember with my big brother in our summer house being in the top of a tree climbing. And I'm, I must have been six or seven. And a, I wasn't actually a particularly brave child when it comes to sort of physical things. So it was a bit odd for me that I, that I was in the top of the tree, but I was obviously there with my brother. So I think that sort of made me think that there was still, you know, again, comparing to sort of children today, although my mom, again, in my dad's words, are very overprotective, et cetera, I, I was still allowed to cl- climb 20 meters up in a tree at the age of six, right? So I think there was still a, a significant element of that. And I think I, I did get pushed in that department as well. But but I probably came from a lot less sort of brave. I'm not very brave when it comes to, to sort of danger in that sense. So so I think that's probably one area where they, they've helped me a lot. Because I think if you had focused, not focused on that, not developed that, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have, have sort of gained the, the physical confidence mm-hmm. that, that I got. But I suppose there's the concept of danger and risk taking in the physical sense and also then in more the non-physical sense of where you are in your career and your business life that we'll come on to. But I think I maybe had the social one sort of more naturally than the physical one. Yeah. Okay. School. You went one school? Yeah. All the, way through, all the way through? 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. The system in Denmark is, is sort of from five to 15. You go from, from zero to 10th or ninth grade as they, as they call it. 
And then after that, we kind of have a three-year college, high school, A-levels type thing before you qualify for university. So yeah, I, I, I went to the same school, same class all the way through. And um, was this embracing the same Reggio Emilia? No, no, that was more, um, I mean, it was a slightly kind of socialist 70s Scandinavian pedagogy. We, we didn't have any doors to the classrooms um, and there was a big kind of open room in the middle and it was all built around these kind of 70s principles. So yes, I think for... For people around the world, it was probably a very modern, sort of uh -huh. uh, very Scandinavian uh, educational setting. But it, but it was, it was great. We had the same teachers all the way up to to seventh grade, and was a really well functioning class. And then at the age of thirteen, we got a new teacher who was quite frankly terrible, and and so did kind of witness a year of all of that falling apart a little bit and having a lot of issues. And actually, in the end our parents stepped in and, and actually kind of luckily again, we had a, a strong parent group that sort of stepped in and actually worked with the school to, to solve the situation and get how, rid of her. How did that bad teaching manifest itself? I mean, again, it's one of those things that when, when you try to think back, it's really, it's really hard to, to sort of realize how, when someone loses a class like mm -hmm. that, because we were very well functioning, but well, maybe no door. it's a little. <laughs> You're all escaping every day. Go, we can't deal with this. <laughs> well, but maybe, maybe it was sort of a company. I, I kind of think that it was a little bit of like a perfect storm. You know, we were all hitting teenagehood, right? Mm -hmm. At at thirteen, so so certainly we were going to get more difficult anyway. You've I been think. brimming with self belief. <laughs> well, but but you know, having 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 twenty five eleven year olds versus twenty five thirteen year olds, I think it's a very different proposition. Yeah. So so maybe it coincided with us sort of also hitting that age right there and then. And and then maybe it was also a case of sort of, you know, if there's been a really successful manager in football, it's sort of the worst job to take over from that, right? I think yeah. it was also just we had had two amazing teachers. So trying to take over from that was probably always going to be an anti-climax mm -hmm. for us. But she just lost us and, and it sort of chaos ensued a little bit for a year. And then we kind of found it again in the last two years. So overall, again, a very, very good school, mm -hmm. actually. And... Um, Quite an interesting, very mixed actually in terms of we had one of the, the largest sort of council estates in Copenhagen next to us. So there were certainly children from all Those walks and backgrounds. Yeah. Certainly a lot, but but it was sort of before people started talking about that as a thing. Yeah. So again, I don't it's think just it's just a, na we, a natural sort of combination. We yeah. didn't think about that at all. And we didn't have these discussions that, that we have a lot now about immigration, et cetera. It was sort of, you know late late 80s early 90s in Denmark no one really talked about that so that was I guess just the way it was but um yeah very grateful for that and then got to a great high school and um, spent three years there where I got to sort of grow up a little bit on the side of that um was it always um as a, as a young man at school and and in high school did you just sort of drift through without any sort of challenges or were you always top of the class I, I was certainly a, I was certainly a good student if you look at sort of averages and and I think I was always quite quite sort of ambitious in that sense but but I think I I think I was with a relatively tight group of of friends and and I think we kind of managed to navigate a little bit that between doing kind of well in school but not not generally being perceived as sort of the geeks you know we we were relatively undisturbed we there wasn't any issues with with sort of you know as I think you can actually have a lot of issues as a child with with sort of special abilities in that sense so but no doubt I you know I've I probably was a, very, a pretty bright child in that sense. What were your What were your favorite um, classes? So I was always very into the to the human side of things. I've I've never been great at maths. I, I'm sort of decent at at basic maths, but but as soon as it starts to have too many you know, symbols and things, I, I get a bit bored, which I've regretted later in life, not sticking with more. But but it was always the sort of 
humanities, it was always sociology and uh -huh. psychology, etc. I, I was very interested in particular ideas about knowledge and, and sort of what is this thing all about, really. That's interesting. Um, so I think that's in terms of sort of relation to where you are today. Try to find some answers, right? Yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> why is why is it all like this, and why am I like that? Um, so so I think that was certainly always naturally where I gravitated towards. And then my my grandfather was was an entrepreneur and started a business, and I think that probably somewhere in my head. I, I probably always had that idea of, of entrepreneurial mm. life or the idea of building my own. Yeah, because um, that was I was going to say, with coming from a background of from teaching, it's often the case that you'll be guided in that direction yourself. But you've gone down the route of so entrepreneurship. So I think my father, my father represented the other side of it. So he was always privately uh, employed and was sort of always. And I think because I spent the majority of my time with my mother. Maybe my dad in some ways had a sort of unequal influence in that, right? I think you kind of want, in some ways, I think you always want to model your father a little bit, right? And, mm -hmm. and he also had a stint as an entrepreneur when, when I was relatively little. So I think it was sort of on my dad's side, it was always private enterprise. And, and I remember lots of family discussions about this between sort of my mom and my dad about Probably an influence of sitting around the campfire in the Swedish mountains as well. I, th I think there was a bit of both. But, you know, I, I was walking around selling pine cones for... for turning on your fireplace at the age of seven in our summer house residence area to try to raise money for candy, right? So I think there was always an element of the entrepreneur. It was just um, a matter of time. Yeah, in some ways, I think so. Okay, well, let's segue into your beyond your school education. You went to university and studied business? Yes. Why, why did you go down that route? So it was a bit of combination, actually. I should say I, I went to Copenhagen Business School, but it was, it was actually called organizational communication. And the idea was to cover all the aspects of communication that a company does so mm -hmm. anything from internal communication to employees to advertising marketing branding pr and as soon as you say communication you say psychology and sociology etc because that's what communication science is, is built on and i actually predominantly chose it because it was a new degree and my thinking was that it was this i was the second year it was what offered. year was this um so I started 2003 to 2004 and I think my idea was that when someone set up a new education, they're always very passionate about it and going where the passion is. So I, and, and then the other thing that appealed to me is in Denmark, it's all sort of merit based. So let's say a hundred people apply to be, um, to be a doctor. It's essentially the kind of 50 people with the highest grades who get in if they have 50 spots. Mm -hmm. And in the first year of this education, it had a relatively high average and I mean, it sounds very banal, but it, it means if you do have the grades for that, you get into a study together with other people who are smart. And I figured that that would make for a better study. So I think it was a combination of those two. It was a bit of a strategic choice, but at the same time, I figured instead of taking a pure kind of communications degree, having that little business thing on it was mm -hmm. going to help me going forward. While you were following this education, which presumably could have taken you in many directions with, as you say, covering a broad range of elements of within the communications sort of landscape. Did you have actually have a plan at that time or set life or career goals at university? And did you have an idea that you would end up following a life of entrepreneurship? So I, I did actually start my first business while at university with another friend from university. So I guess it did start there. Um, yes, when we were uh, at the end of our first year of university, we set up a little communications agency uh, called Unique Aim. Mm -hmm. The idea was to sort of work with small, medium-sized companies to basically help them sort of with their website messaging and copy and everything. So yeah, we actually, we ran it as a consultancy for, for two years while in, in university. So I guess I did start there. I didn't ask you about your first experience of the internet and how you got into 
developing websites and that developing those skills. Yeah, I was kind of always into computers. We we got a computer relatively early at home and my big brother um was very into it. And so so I think I did kind of get introduced to to computers pretty early and certainly sort of as far back as I can remember we we had a computer. But it was never the I was never the kind of I want to take this apart and program it and and hack it and code it type mm. child. Um I was much more about the the experience that they could give information etc. So yeah, I was never I was never sort of the technical child in that sense. I I wasn't fascinated with computers from a, from a sort of engineering point of view. I was fascinated with them from a a kind of communications point of view. It, 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 you talked about asked about serendipity in the beginning. This is this is sort of the pure serendipity. So in our third year, we had a, a one of our last lectures was about viral marketing because this was right kind of in the beginning of video online and, of course, and all of yeah. those things uh, pre YouTube. And quite frankly, we had the lecture and I'd never heard about it. And I thought that is bloody cool. Yeah. So I went home and I googled and and it turns out there was this little Danish company called Go Viral, which was helping brands make vi- videos viral. And they had done this little sort of folder for can lions i think it was and so you could sort of request that on the website and so i filled in my email and sent it and then this is sort of where pure serendipity strikes but but the day after the ceo of the company called me and said he could see that i downloaded it from a student email mm. and they had just signed a big campaign so they were looking for student helps whether i wanted to come in and have a cup of coffee because he figured anyone who had actually shown an interest in this was you know should have yeah. first priority so I, I rocked up uh, the day after and had a coffee with him and um, and sort of by the end of it, he he was like, so when when can you start? And I said, well, you know, you want to be casual, right? So you go, well, I don't know, you know, maybe next Monday. He but you like, were still at university this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was about three, four months into my last year. And still working year. on your own campaigns with your friend? Yes. Yeah. And and so when I got that job, we basically shot down the, it, it was sort of coming to a bit of a point with the other company anyway, because we'd done a lot of work for a relocation company. And, and they were sort of saying, we, we can't keep paying you, you know, 40, 50 pounds an hour uh, for essentially doing in-house work. Um, so they offered to basically hire us on a permanent basis to work with that. And I didn't want to do that. But my, uh, my fellow um, sort of co-founder ended up taking that job and actually worked there for years after university. Whereas, so we kind of shut the company down and I took the other job. And then uh, as part of my degree for the last four months, um, you had to do a full-term, like full-time internship. Mm. So I picked the same company and went out four months. And then basically when I finished my degree, the CEO at the time asked if I wanted to um, come to London for a year and help start the office in London. How brilliant. <laughs> and I was, you know, turning 23 and I thought, you know, why not? And so this was early July and on the 1st of August, I moved to London and, um, yeah, I was meant to stay for a year, but that's 12 years ago in April. Oh, sorry, you know, in August. So, um, yeah, that's pure serendipity of how I ended up in London. Yeah. And for people that don't know the legacy of Go Viral, I mean, some of the campaigns they've produced are award-winning and famous. And I think probably one of the most famous ones is the great epic split by with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Still to this day, the yeah. most watched automotive video on YouTube. Yeah, yeah so we, we'll, anyone you know, that hasn't seen it, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's, um, it was certainly fun to, to sort of those early Wild West days of, and the company grew very quickly, et cetera, and, and actually ended up being acquired by AOL in, in mm. 2011. But during that time, you must have got to work with, work with some great creative talent as well at other agencies like Forsman. And- yeah, so we were, we, were, we were sort of in an interesting role, right? Because we were the media side, but suddenly sort of for the first time in advertising, the content really mattered because we could only do so well, right? If people yeah. didn't want to... One of my favorite jokes from the time was always 
you know, companies would call us and say, we've made a viral video. And I would sort of be like, have you shown it to anyone yet? And they go, no. So I said, well, it's not viral yet then. You know, because you obviously also get a lot of videos that really weren't. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the hardest part was to sort of explain people what are the mechanics that make something actually move on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was still very early. Brands were used to making TV ads and, and we had lots of briefs of, could I take this TV ad and make it viral, right? And having to tell people that 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 isn't really how the internet works. Um, so it was fun in that sense. It was challenging too, because you had to sometimes be the person telling the truth that this isn't going to be shared all over the internet, even if you dream about it and you spent a million on this video, it isn't going to happen. And actually that kind of became very much our business in a way, sort of help make sure that the videos deliver so that mm -hmm. no one is going to get fired and no one, even if the video it didn't end up being the most amazing, you'll learn and the next video might yeah. be, right? And so it was. It became very consultative. Yeah, it was fun. And then right as AOL was buying us, it was very good timing for the business in that sense that YouTube was, was sort of really beginning to eat the world at that point. Um, and I think it would have been hard to to compete head to head with them. So so I think it was probably in hindsight, very good timing mm -hmm. to, to exit at that point. Yeah, I think it was, it was certainly around that time there were people emerging like DeFrank doing some really cool uh, videos that just had a naturally viral nature to them. And then lots of early stage YouTube sort of stars. It also began, began to be much more about kind of brands wanting to work with influencers, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so that whole kind of influencer marketing, I still still punch myself for not seeing influencer marketing in 2010 and oh, just go for it before anybody else did. But, um, you know, those are the real lessons, right? Looking back and going, why didn't I see? Because I was in that every day. But, you know, we, we didn't really think of the channels themselves as a commercial opportunity. Mm -hmm. It was always about taking the videos from YouTube and putting them somewhere else. Um, so. so what was it like when you, you transitioned from Go Viral into what must have been a much more of a corporate environment um, of AOL? You know, there's there's lots of stories about AOL. I think I'm not actually part of that chorus in the sense that I we had a really good time at AOL and they really they actually did a, a very good job of, of welcoming us. In the first two years, so I, I kind of took on a job as head of planning. So trying to sit across all the different products that we had and sort of be the person that the sales teams could bring in to have a conversation with the brands. So if we if one of the sales teams in Asia managed to get a chat to Samsung and, and Samsung said, okay, well, if we were to spend a million dollars with you guys or $2 million, what would we get essentially? And then it was kind of my job to put that together across all the different things AOL could do. So that was very fun, but it was also challenging because we were trying to integrate people who had never done stuff together before, right? So trying to go and have a chat to TechCrunch about could Samsung sponsor the event or mm -hmm. whatever, right? And Or could, you know, we were trying to introduce this idea of branded and sponsor content, but the editors at the time were certainly not welcome, lukewarm to that idea, yeah, right? Still, um, even, even within AOL, there was still a separation church and state. A separation that has very much sort of been diluted since. <laughs> but, but back then it was still pretty strong, right? Yeah. Editors didn't feel they had to do mm -hmm. anything with brands. It was their job to write content. And then it was other people's job to, to sort of make the money around that. Um, so that became challenging. And then I think in the long run, two things happened. You know, our founders started to leave and take other jobs, et cetera, in the organization. And when that kind of the core of the culture disappears or uh -huh. dilutes. It it does change over time. It's a, I compared it a bit with a few of my colleagues at the time of, you know, when you're, when you're at a really good party and it is a really good party, but you all know the party's going to end at some point, right? And you don't want to be the last person to leave. Um, so it was kind of that, you know, it was still a great party, but we all knew it was coming to an end at some point. And so, um, yeah, I kind of made it to, to the, to the middle of 2014 and then increasingly, it, it was being more and more difficult to sort of get stuff done. And I think um, 
we also sort of had some changes at AOL that meant that the company started to focus a lot more on the US again, and it made it increasingly difficult to be in Europe because we were a small thing compared to what was going on in the US. Um, so you sort of either had the choice of almost going to New York and be part of that mm -hmm. or or accept that London was sort of a, a little bastion satellite, of Europe, yeah, yeah a satellite. Um, and so I just decided to leave. Uh -huh. So I went into the office one day and said, I'm going to leave. I should have planned it better, but I didn't. Well, <laughs> I just decided to leave. Let's talk a bit about that. Let's con just contextualize before we get into talking about what, what you did when you set up and you set up your own business um, called Biblio. Um, it was called Biblio back then or not? Uh, the, the first name is much worse than that, but luckily my girlfriend talked me out of keeping that one. What, um, what was it? I came up with Educita, which was a mix of education and cetaceans, which are whales. Um, the whale family, and it, it's a terrible name. It makes I, no I, sense. I hope you've given your girlfriend <laughs> some shares in the company um, for that good bit of advice. Uh, um, so she actually came up with Biblio. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's all her credit, and it just kind of worked. Um, the hardest part was really to try to find a name that still had a decent sort of URL you could buy and 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 stuff. So with the double B, it kind of worked, and we figured it had a nice ring to it, et cetera. And, and actually, the first idea, I should say, of Biblio was to build, it was much more an educational idea. It was the idea of sort of taking particular educational videos from YouTube and building a kind of aggregation and curation platform for, as we loosely defined it at the time, content that could make you smarter. That was the pitch that I convinced Rob to move to London to. Then he's been changed, brainwashed into doing other things since then. Well, before we get into specifically explaining what Biblio is today and the impact it's going to have on the communication sort of landscape. For listeners that don't really follow what's really happening and the structural changes that have occurred in advertising, content, publishing, can you just give a short overview of what the structural changes have been that um, are affecting us in what's often referred to as the attention economy or prefers actually the distraction or addiction economy as we're all stuck to our screens what basically happened when the social platforms came in, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, was sort of we lowered the barrier for content production, right? And, and it meant that the, the amount of content exploded. And everybody at the time was sort of talking about this idea of lowering the gatekeepers and how it was going to make the world a better place and this kind of internet utopian kind of talk. Um, and I, I guess I was very much part of that, you know, thinking that this was going to sort of instill a new glorious world of participatory media and, and open, com and, you know, the early examples, Wikipedia, et cetera, were all very, very promising, right? What we didn't really see was sort of the centralization that was going to come from that. So I think nobody had really predicted how these platforms were going to step in between the people who create the content and the consumers and actually own the consumers maybe more than ever. What I, I think you're referring to here is we talk a lot about this idea of attention economy, that at the end of the day, human attention is a resource. Mm -hmm. We have 24 hours a day. We have certain things we have to do, um, certain things we like to do. And we're hitting a point, in my opinion, of, of sort of peak attention very rapidly where there isn't really any spare time left. You know, when you see people on the trains or on a plane or whatever, it's there's either a game or a social feed or something, right? So increasingly it's kind of like a zero-sum game where these big companies have to compete with each other so actually it doesn't really matter if you're netflix or facebook or youtube or twitter you're actually competing for the same user's attention and the biggest losers in that war has actually been traditional publishers because mm. they really didn't adapt to to this world of sort of tech platforms coming in and, and delivering in all honesty a better user experience right and because they could aggregate the content from many different sources, they could also very quickly actually 
in many ways build a better content offering. So you had both better user experience and better content offering. And it was catastrophic for publishing and media, right? So we kind of loosely in the publishing and media space kind of break it into to three sort of eras. The first one was digitization, which is sort of started around, you know, 98 or whatever, maybe up to 2008. By then, everybody really had a website. And then the next 10 years is sort of really the story of the rise of Google and, and Facebook and Amazon and, and to a certain degree, Microsoft and Apple, et cetera, right? It was only 2007, Apple started to eat the mobile phone market, right? And it, it really meant the publishers on the one side lost control of their audience, but all the advertising money also started to flow towards these companies. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of created a bit of a perfect storm for publishing, right? And so I think for the last five, 10 years, it's it's really for most publishers been a question of just staying alive. And I think, you know, that's hopefully part of what we can begin to address in in a more formal formal way. And, I, you know, I still firmly believe that there will be a role for, for governments, et cetera, to play in, in regulating mm -hmm. this world. I, I think I've come quite far in changing my opinion that at the moment, this attention market, as as you could call it, I don't think is a very well-functioning market. I think um, it's a great Wired article not too long ago that listed the 43 data scandals that Facebook had had in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 43 scandals in a year. And, and that only touches on this sort of idea of us being tracked everywhere, being our data being sort of aggregated and pulled out. And, and sort of one of my most radical fun ideas at the moment is to build this little bot that can generate a lot of synthetic data to basically obscure people. Because if we can't opt out of all of this, at least we could yeah. obscure could. ourselves again, right? Um, so I, I certainly think I'm, I'm sort of probably become more and more activist in that area that I really think we do need to do something between individuals and governments, et cetera. We, we do need to find a way of, of reigning in these companies. And, you know, I could get political and say that should also happen on the tax side. Well, well maybe, yeah, we'll maybe touch on that in a little bit later. The, there's a quote, I think it was 1971, a guy called, an economist called Herbert Simon had this quote, which is a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention, which is part of a longer quote. But I think that was um, a very insightful about way ahead of time, obviously predicting the world of what we're living in now. And, you know, that poverty of attention has to be addressed somehow. You and what you're doing with your current iteration of Biblio, I think the, the term that you use as a recommendation engine. Can you explain how you in your own particular way with Biblio are trying to address that issue that we're facing in the attention economy where people's attention have been taken from content sources that are maybe positive for them, to end up in content locations that may be detrimental. The sort of duality of platforms like YouTube is, is obviously that there's lots of amazing stuff. I think the, the flip side of that is that YouTube has no inherent motivation to push you towards that stuff. Mm -hmm. They're essentially an ad-funded business, so the more time you spend, the better. That tends to create this kind of downward spiral where you you pitch people the lowest common denominator, right? Be that gaming or music or sports or, you know, funny, you know, we've all had these funny videos, right? Um, and, and I think YouTube really, you could say from an algorithmic point of view, it's really been YouTube and Facebook and Instagram strategy to take people down the rabbit hole, right? And and sort of, uh, when I talk about this, I, I talk a lot about Daniel Kahneman's oh, yeah. sort of thinking fast and slow, this system one and system two. I think it's worth remembering that humans are both sort of impulsive active agents that act in the moment. And then we have this kind of reflective self and I think the biggest challenge with this kind of media is that your reflective self 
doesn't get to win very often. You know, the the balance of power between those two, I think, have shifted dramatically. And and I think, you know, we talked about education earlier. I think in particular, children are not are, are very vulnerable to this sort of um, pattern of behavior that you create. Right? If if the iPad or the or the computer or the phone becomes the first thing, you get these very addictive behaviors, right? Because it it there's a lot of habit formation and. We're not going to Tristan Harris, but there's a guy from Google who's done a lot on... I was okay. going to bring up Tristan Harris and time well spent and near IL and what he's done with Hooked. And- yeah, so that, please do. Uh, there's obviously a lot of, of evidence that a lot of these companies have done this very deliberately um, and, and that it's absolutely not a coincidence. You could sort of say it's, you know, Hooked, near IL is, is a book about how you create addictive products, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so but in fairness to Nier, he's also very much of the view that we have to do something to address that. Then you can build po- positive. I mean, the book was products. written a long time ago. Yeah, right? and you can and build po- uh, products that use the principles of Hooked to, to do good rather than to be detrimental. And that's hopefully sort of the next wave of, of digital products that are going to come is, mm-hmm. is going to use some of those things too. So, so I guess from a biblio point of view, we try to give publishers the access to the same type of technologies that mm-hmm. those companies employ, you know. One of the interesting things about AI is that when when you say the word AI, people always think about robots and drones and you know you know AI playing Go, but but it sort of neglects the fact that billions of people interact with AI every day through Google and Facebook yeah. and YouTube, right? We're we're already living in an AI world. Me, your media has actually been the first domain where AI really has has taken over. Mm-hmm. When you open your Facebook or Instagram, whatever, you're interacting with an AI. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of there are some people who are beginning to do really good work in that area. There's a particular guy called Joe Edelman who's done a wonderful piece of work on kind of maximization algorithms versus reason-based algorithms. Mm-hmm. And and what he really kind of proves in that work is that these algorithms that Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, have, have deployed are really in, in many ways quite crude. You know, they really try to just optimize for time spent. Mm-hmm. They're very clever algorithms in the sense that they're they're deep learning algorithms with hundreds of variables, et cetera. But but really it all comes down to can we get these people to spend more time? Not, as you say with Tristan Harris, to ask the question of are we helping them spend their time right? Yeah. Um and I think hopefully that's gonna be the next shift, is that more and more people will begin to ask of the systems they use to to also help them be better people, not not just consume more. You talk about when you talk about Biblio, about helping people find the right content. It can go both ways. (laughs) People find the right content uh, in the right context uh, for the right person. Could you put that, uh, explain that a bit more in layman's terms as to how it actually works? Sure. And Uh, how they would experience this? So we, we basically work with publishers and media companies and we sit on their website and when the website loads uh, on a given article, let's say it's about sports science, they can essentially use Biblio as, as a technology layer to ask their database, which other content should I display in and around this content? So we do the heavy lifting in terms of basically these kind of boxes with related content or popular content or you know further reading or whatever they might be called. Um, we've all come across those on, on websites. And we basically offer publishers to not have to sort of worry about that area, but but to buy that as a service, just like they might buy a search application or they might buy a content management system. Publishers really need the same four, five, six core technologies. And, and I think there are very good arguments for why those could be commoditized and, and built 
sort of on a larger scale, um, saving each publisher resource and, and allowing them to focus on what's really their core so business. What, so what you're helping people avoid is clickbait? Um, and being taken down that rabbit hole. I mean, I wish we could we could say that we had made a dent in that. I I still think clickbait's winning in some ways, but yeah, we we as a result, you can say Biblio also mostly work with with websites that have an ele- element of quality content, right? Mm-hmm. So be that travel, food, technology. We work less with with kind of basic entertainment platforms. Um, we work a lot more with kind of professional audiences or or interested audiences, and in that world actually finding the right content makes an impact for people. You know, if I'm looking at a camera website and I've, I've found this article about a Canon 7D, actually finding the most relevant articles around that and, and optimizing the ones that seem to be doing best in terms of satisfying users does create a real uplift. We can have much more of an impact on, on websites like that than we could on, you know, the sun. Yeah. So when you actually set it up and you've mentioned that there was focus, going to be focused on helping people develop their knowledge and education, as a platform, were you scratching your own itch or were you just identifying a problem you felt existed and needed a solution? And then <laughs> once you decided it wasn't the right way to go, what led you to focus on Biblio in its current incarnation? So that's that's maybe the second point of serendipity. I, th- I think we were. I, I was obviously working pretty much all my kind of professional life on YouTube and, and I started finding these channels that I thought were super interesting. In particular, there's a guy called Vsauce who are doing these amazing kind of learning videos where he asks big questions and I started looking into it and realized that pretty much in, uh, Vsauce, so just a V and then Source, source yeah. It, yeah. And it was just education and learning in a whole new way. You know, he has one video that's sort of called what would happen if we all got together in one place in the planet and all jumped at the same time, <laughs> right? And Obviously, he has to introduce physics and all these other topics, but it was all led through kind of community inquiry. Uh, he didn't go lowbrow at all. It's extremely sort of complicated, and he references papers and, and everything. But but it was the format of it was different from any other education I'd ever seen. And so the idea was to kind of take build a platform. The challenge when we then went to teachers was that teachers had a real hesitancy, kind of like Wikipedia in the beginning, to send kids to YouTube. But we realized a lot of that problem came from the fact that as soon as the child lands on YouTube, YouTube remembers the child, not the content, right? So you're only one click away from being hooked in a gaming world for four four hours because I, as a teacher, send you a five-minute video about, you know, biology. So so a lot of teachers sort of refuse to, to send their kids to YouTube to watch these videos. And so the idea came to take them out of YouTube and present them in another environment. I still love the idea. It proved very difficult in the sense that it wasn't our content. We didn't own the IP. So any attempt at monetizing around that would run into copyright issues. Or we could have done like Facebook and just ignored copyright. But um, (laughs) I didn't feel that was a viable strategy at the time. And sort of secondly, we actually sort of experienced the same thing that our publishers and and clients now experience, right? 90% of our traffic was coming from social media and Google or whatever, but they weren't coming to our front page. They were landing on a video. And so we had this kind of problem of people coming from 20,000 different sort of angles. And we had to essentially, looking at other websites, we realized we had to come up with some related content and things we could show them when they landed on that. And we first made a terrible attempt of building these manual collections, uh, which didn't scale very well. We had a girl in Hong Kong who were full-time employed just 
tagging me- videos. Mechanical Turk. Yeah, she really yeah. was. We called her the smartest girl in Hong Kong because she spent her whole day watching learning <laughs> videos. <laughs> But it didn't scale very well. So we we built a very simple version of a recommender system actually built on something called Elasticsearch. So it was actually a search. It kind of did a search for the other documents. And we kind of went to other people and said, how have you solved this problem? And they all kind of went, we haven't. <laughs> and so I, I think I and everybody at Biblio got really fascinated yeah. about this idea of recommender systems and about these, you know, if we live in a world where there's too much content and these machines decide what world we see and don't see, I think it kind of all dawned on us at that moment, the, the sort of potential, both democratic implications, but also implications, I think, for humans in general. One of the hardest things is, as a human being is to be aware of the things that you're not seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, So when these algorithms on a large scale begin to decide what people should see and have very distinct, as we sort of talk about business motives for what they're pushing and what they're preferring, the combination of those two things are potentially quite catastrophic. When you essentially have a system that's only interested in maximizing attention, but is doing so on a very, very large scale. There's a guy we worked with in the US who've written an amazing paper on how engagement-based algorithms like that, unfortunately, tend to push people away from the middle because there's simply more emotion and engagement in in the fringes, right? Mm -hmm. Controversial content creates more engagement. Which could be creating our polarization in the political landscape. He did an amazing um, study on YouTube around the last election where he he went and searched for Trump and Hillary and then followed YouTube's top recommendations Mm -hmm. for a number of clicks and basically proved that you ended up in Pizzagate after three clicks. Wow. So he really Mm -hmm. showed how these platforms weren't a neutral. But but I think him and other people have proven how how these algorithms, I think very inadvertently, you know, I, I don't mm. actually think there was any sort of deeper intent to it from the on the side of Google or Facebook or anybody else. I, I think it is a pure historical coincidence, really, that they built a set of algorithms that were spectacularly successful from a business point of view and potentially catastrophic from a democratic point of view, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Products can be very good at achieving one thing. But, and I think it's one of the characteristics of AI, right? When people talk about the dangers of AI in the future, I, I did a talk last week where we, we sort of ended up talking about what you really realize when you start to talk about morals and ethics of AI is that AI can only get its morals and ethics from us. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely don't have a cohesive sort of no, value-based system governing the world, right? So it's very possible that this AI, these AIs, these very powerful engines that can operate at large scale will have essentially flawed ethics because they inherit the ethics from the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like with anything we've or seen the internet. Or competing ethics sort of yeah. systems, you know, depending which sort of a bad actor or rogue state the AI platform emerges from, or you might not know where it's emerged from and not know its intentionality or its, uh, and, its and, ethics. And I think one of the things we're really, I, that was actually sort of the topic of the talk last week is, is there's a f- fantastic talk by a guy called Ian Hogarth, who was one of the founders of Songkick, who talked about the geopolitics of AI, where he sort of points out that really all of the big players in AI uh, are either Chinese or American. Mm-hmm. And, and there's almost this move towards a new form of colonialism, right? Where if we can't tax these very profitable companies effectively, but we all rely on them. Do we almost get this sort of, he envisions this kind of sort of almost subservient state where where company, you know, countries like Denmark or Sudan will really, and maybe even the UK, will have very little choice other than to accept these companies sort of harvesting and using the data of the populations in those countries without mm-hmm. us effectively being able to govern them. Um, I think that's, you know, it's one of those sort of predictions that I think we have to take very serious, right? Yeah. And and he kind of says, and it can actually all happen pretty much sort of coincidentally, right? It's, you know, it just develops um, because 
there is a large economic incentive for China and America to invest in this area. Yeah. And, and there's a natural tendency for countries to protect their most valuable companies and sort of peddle their policy as foreign policy. And we certainly see that in the US now, right? Um, yeah, and I'm sure just in talking about the UK specifically and, and recent news about 5G networks and the, the, the massive debate over Huawei and the level to which their equipment is integrated in the infrastructure mm -hmm. certainly has to create some concerns amongst uh, policymakers when you start talking about harvesting of data. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, in some ways, it's a different sort of question, but you could ask the same question about Facebook and our democratic system, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. There's different types of infrastructure. Yeah. The democratic infrastructure has certainly taken a hit, I think. There's a great TED talk by the woman from The Guardian at the latest TED two weeks ago, where she kind of took the question to Mark and Larry and Sergei on stage at TED and sort of said, what, what do you actually intend to do about this? Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you might have broken the electoral infrastructure and we don't really know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, because certainly no one has come up with any answers to why the next election should be any different, right? Um, yeah. If this information can spread on a large scale, and I think these companies have proven that they can't control it, what options do we really have? Um, it's very bleak, I know. But, but, but I think there are certainly, those are the questions that need to be asked. It's not necessarily as bleak as I've, I've pointed out. I think there's lots of ways that could be addressed. But I certainly think those are the questions we need to be asking. After interviewing Manish Walterpuri last week, um, who's an expert in data in the dark web, have started to think about writing a piece for the Impossible Network just around this whole area of attention and distraction. And for me, the one thing that isn't being talked about is intention, intentionality. And that what's happening to us is our intentionality to learn, to develop, focus our attention in the places that will be of benefit to us as, through, as we go through um, discovery, reasoning and mastery to develop knowledge and wisdom is being taken away from us, is being hijacked. And we need to somehow find the technologies or the, or the directions of the platforms to allow us to live with intentionality as Ryder Carroll, another guy we interviewed, talks about. So this idea of we've almost got this, this our attention, this passive attention, but we want an active intention and to be able to be able to set goals, either time-based, content-based or educational-based intention when we spend time online. And I think that's something that probably has to start with education and policy. But I would just like to get your perspective on that because I think one of the things you're doing with creating this, this recommender system, it's at least enabling the publishers to ensure that there's a set element of safety in their environment that people aren't being taken down some rabbit hole. It's like you said, the only two You can also away. say very, very distinctly, we provide algorithmic transparency so we can explain what the algorithms are doing. Yeah. That, I think transparency is actually a first step in a way. At least we could tell a user what the algorithm's doing mm -hmm. and what it's basing its results on. I think a lot of this kind of, mentioned dark web there's also a lot of dark box you know black box in algorithms right there's there's a lot of the systems that google have deployed etc that they're struggling to explain themselves so i think that's you know if we can't explain it then of course it's going to be hard to create policy or or stuff around it um when when you said that it did make me think of one thing and i'm i'm sorry for sort of doing um maybe a little bit of a long quote there's a book by a guy called neil postman mm -hmm. called amusing ourselves to death and you mentioned that thing about intentionality yes. and and i just I think I want to reveal this first. The book is written in 1985, right. and it's actually about daytime cable TV. 
But I think we can apply the same sort of. You I'm know, sure we can. Yeah. It it maybe only got worse from there. But he was he was sort of outraged about daytime TV in the U.S. in the mid '80s. But he he wrote in the intro to the book, "We were keeping our eye on 1984, when the year came and the prophecy did, and thoughtful Americans sang in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held." Wherever else terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. And then he sort of goes on to say, but what we had forgotten was that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly well-known thesis, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And what he then essentially goes, goes on to say is that what Orwell feared was those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban books, for there would be no one who wanted to read them. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity. And then he sort of finishes, he has more of these and you can go through it himself, but he sort of ends the intro by going, this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Yeah. And, and I think in particular, he points out at some point that a lot of these people that have created media theories about this fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. And, and I think really that is more what we're seeing, right? Is is just creating a world of passivity and, and sort of consumption, right? It's, it's more a sort of digital coliseum, as I think in one article I called it, Facebook is sort of the ultimate hot water bottle, right? It's, it's sort of comforting, but ultimately, you know, not providing any real human sort of value in that. Of course, Facebook and YouTube and all these things can all be used for very good things, but they can unfortunately also, they sort of also almost have an endless capacity for distraction. Uh Um, And I think we have to have a a much more solid conversation about that in the coming years. And and my real fear is sort of more that society almost breaks in two, where to some of us, it's, it's going to be the best media we've ever had, but to other people, it really will be a kind of digital sort of consumption prison that, you know, there's a great quote by Reed Hastings recently where he's sort of the CEO of Netflix, where he talks about um, how when you really want to binge that show and watch the next one, they're actually competing with sleep, right? And then he finishes the quote by saying, and we're winning. And if I was Reed Hastings, I wouldn't have said that. Yeah, well, I've experienced that myself. And and it is something that you do have to, with like with intentionality, say switch off. Americans sleep almost an hour less per night on average than they did 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's, it's a really interesting thing to follow. So, but I think, it, you know, anyone who you talk to who has children in, in those ages now will mm-hmm. talk about the sort of daily battle with, with screens, right? And, yeah. and what policy do you create as a family? I think there are families where you sort of consider it an, an essential skill in the future. But then at the same time, how do you sort of not... I think there's a lot to be said in psychology and psychiatry for, for sort of habit formation, et cetera, right? And mm-hmm. we, we talked about some of these sort of technologies and how they're really built. You know, the games are probably, you know, one category where we've really where we've really seen this play out, right? Games are extremely addictive, both from a mobile point of view. And, and, and the whole category has kind of shifted to these free-to-play games that mm. rely on being extremely sticky and, and extremely time-consuming. I just want to cover off a couple of things before we move into the quickfire questions. I mean, this book, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my, my list of not to read, but to listen to audiobooks in Audible which are Roger McNamee's book, uh, Zut. I haven't looked at the latest IAB figures, but I do think that digital advertising is approaching around 300 billion, which obviously is having an impact, as you said earlier, on, on journalism and publishing. Albeit maybe it hasn't had the impact on video content, um, as that's the spend on television, traditional, let's say, 
ads have remained solid. But I think uh, McNamee's book talks about how his investments have created a monster that Google and Facebook represent now in 90% of the digital ad spends. But there are signs that publishers are fighting back and new alliances um, are being formed. They're maybe pulling back from Facebook and Google. What's your sense just of the, the future for Facebook and Google? Do you think they're just going to continue with their, this duopolist dominance? Or do you think there's something out there that's going to emerge, whether it be something that you're part of or that we can't see coming because it's just around the corner that's going to flip the model? Think. And you can give me a utopian dystopian say it's view. Not, it's not just the billion-dollar question. It's the $200 billion question, isn't yeah. it? How do, you, how do you displace Google and Facebook? Maybe let me answer this way. I think there's three scenarios. There is a, a kind of Microsoft in the 90s scenario where we as societies decide that we've had enough and we decide to regulate. Uh, that's the one I hope for because I think regulation is, as I said, when you have imperfect and not functioning markets, governments really historically are the best rule we have or the best job we have. Let's call that one scenario. I'm not convinced that it's going to be be quick enough and, and might not come from enough. Congress, but it might come might start with the I EU. mean Europe is um particular we have a Danish competition commissioner who's pretty aggressive in that field, right? And she might be the next European commissioner. That would certainly represent and Europe certainly represents at the moment the sort of stronghold for trying to have this debate at least. You know, we did pass the, the new copyright yeah. laws, etc. as well, data protection laws, etc. So I think Europe is certainly showing the way. Whether it's enough, you know, we'll see. Uh, as I said, there's a big push for the US to allow these companies to operate, right? And China is the next one. Um the first sort of big company, Tao Chao, has made it out of China now. With They, they were the company who bought Musical.ly. Now TikTok, yeah. right, which is the fastest growing social network. So we're also beginning to see China. And, and actually, very interestingly, recently, I don't know if you saw, but the, the FCA in the US banned the sale of Grindr to, to China. Yeah, the Chinese company that, bought yeah. it on the fears of, you know, potential blackmail. Yeah. So I think it, 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 it tells me that whole area around technology are becoming increasingly politicized. And that might actually wake up governments a little bit. So that's kind of one scenario. Mm -hmm. The second scenario is that, you know, as, as with always in the tech world, someone comes up with something smart that effectively starts to displace it. So I think the second one really is sort of, of course, the in tech, the, the displacement idea, right? right? That someone comes and builds something. I think that's becoming, in my view, less likely in the sense that with these new algorithms, et cetera, data is kind of a competitive differentiator in and of itself. You know, right. It would be extremely difficult to build a search engine that's better than Google simply because of the scale that Google has. So I think we've come to a point in monopoly theory where they're sort of far enough and big enough that it's very difficult to compete. And there's, you know, even Congress people in the US have started talking about how I've met a lot of VCs who've stopped investing in B2C startups because they're literally saying it's you can't compete up against Google and Facebook. You know, best case scenario, you're remotely successful or they buy you out. Mm -hmm. But actually displacing them now is is sort of a wishful thinking. Okay. Um so so I think that's kind of number two. And then number three really is is the sort of idea that in between that consumers increasingly will start to resist a little bit and and actually push back. And I think we are seeing some tiredness, right? I think I'm still waiting for the day where social media becomes uncool again and where famous actors, et cetera, decide to give up Instagram to be cool. Maybe that's wishful thinking too. Um, so maybe we're stuck with the government version. Okay. But I, you know, I'm still hoping for those people to go out and talk about these, you know, famous people to go out and make social media uncool. Um, that's my best scenario. That's a great summary. <laughs> Just to say to anyone uh, listening to the podcast, you may be hearing a slight change in the sound. We had to move room. Um, this is the realities of uh, 
doing podcast interviews in cool working spaces, but this is fine. We're now in a very cozy little phone booth. Matt, just to finish off, I think you summarized those three different directions of where the industry will go. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Um, go ahead, or otherwise we move on. You mentioned before, maybe that's the the, the one thing that's sort of worth mentioning, is I, I do think, as he wrote, that we are beginning to see the idea of collaboration in in the industry, in particular publishing and media, beginning to sort of realize that maybe they have a com- that these aggregators are sort of the common enemy. I think there's, there's a lot less sort of naivety now around the intentions of Google and, and Facebook, et cetera, when, when it comes to sort of eating the advertising pie and, and also moving beyond that, right, into e-commerce, et cetera. So hopefully the world is also a bit less blue-eyed now. You know, now, now they face a real competition in the sense that they almost, you know, were allowed to get quite big, strangely not under the radar, but almost under the radar. And then suddenly it, it started having huge impacts on on budgets in, in publishing, et cetera. I think at the same time, publishing is beginning to find a way out by transitioning themselves. What we haven't talked so much about today is how publisher revenues are diversifying away from just being reliant on advertising. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, subscriptions one way, but e-commerce is another yeah. way. Branded and sponsored content, you know, they're increasingly successful taking business out of advertising agencies and PR companies, et cetera. So I think there are ways for publishing to go to to build a more sustainable sort of self-reliant future. But I think that has to be less reliant on advertising than, than it was. So so that's the good version of what we're in. We're certainly beginning to see that in particular in kind of higher value verticals, you know, financial media, interest media, et cetera. It's less so in news, but luckily a few people are beginning to make subscription models successful in news, right? So I think it's not all doom and gloom for publishing in and of itself. I think we've probably seen the worst days. Um, I think it is actually heading upwards from here. Good. Yeah. So um, can you give examples of where there has been success? Yeah. So so I sort of remember 10 years ago when when people really sort of laughed at the Financial Times for going behind a paywall, right? I, sh- I should disclose my girlfriend work at the Financial Times, so obviously know it a bit. But they've, they've just hit a million paying subscribers now, right? Which probably makes them the sort of best positioned specialist media company new york times is another one that's obviously done done really well recently the guardian announced recently that they're they're hitting break even now on a on a very interesting model right with sort of volunteer membership and and donation combined with with all the other business models so i certainly think we are beginning to to see that i think the the big question is how many are there room for in that right if you're not the guardian or the financial times or maybe the washington post but we're seeing on a smaller scale of podcasts with patreon and people taking up their sort of Patreon, yeah, launching you know obviously light content that's for free, and then paid subscription to attend events, get deeper content. So I think there are a, a, there's an evolution to the old business model. That and, and I think each publisher has to find their own mix of those things. It's I don't think it's going you know subscription is going to work for some people, but as you say, events, uh, sort of premium information, data aggregation. We see some publishers being successful putting together kind of data sets that people can subscribe to. Mm. Uh, so you kind of provide the content and then you've got some data, et cetera, sitting for that sort of premium subscriber. So I think there's lots of ways that that can play out. It's obviously no easy path to get there, right? It's a bumpy road for, for publishers to kind of, in many cases, sort of reorganize themselves. And in some cases, reorganize companies that are sort of 100, 200 years old to, you know, and it's sort of re- reorganizing again, I was going to say, because they've reorganized two or three times in the last 10 years, right? Now they're doing it again. And and every time you have less resource to do it with and and staff and changes and, and all of those things. So, but I think there certainly is a generation of media companies now. We see, 
where we see particular success is actually in what we call specialist media. So anything from CrossFit to travel to food to we are seeing successful publishers that inherit and, and sort of inhabit those verticals and serve more specialist audiences with, with things that sort of more mainstream players can never hope to, to cater for. Um, so we're certainly seeing that B2B and B2C kind of vertical media has, has definitely sort of managed to weather the storm and, and are coming out pretty strong on the other side with a diversified revenue mix. How does curiosity and creativity manifest itself in your in your work? I mean, if you ask most Biblions, they would say it probably manifests itself in a sometimes uh, not great ability to focus on what's at hand and wanting to talk about where the future is. I, I've had to take one quote very close to heart in this journey, which is that being a good CEO is is living as far as you can in the future without damaging the present. Exactly, and I'm, one, yeah. I'm not always great at that. <laughs> I prefer the future, but but I think that's why going on a journey like this is very grounding because it really teaches you the, the the value of prioritizing the here and now and prioritizing the things you're spending your time on um, instead of getting carried away. Another one we use at Biblio is, is earning the right to build what we want to build. Don't assume that you can just build all the things you want. Actually, when you start up a startup, you can really only build one very little thing well, and that has to kind of work and get some traction to give you the permission to build the next things that you really wanted to build. So I think those are the two quotes that have sort of stuck with me in that. Okay, I'm going to move on to the quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Principles I stand by. Um, we we try to embrace one here in Biblioco um, around radical candor, sort of tell each other the truth at work because we're here to do good work. And, and if you don't tell each other the truth, then it gets very difficult to do that. It's always um, going to happen with some Dutch people in the office. Sir. It's always going <laughs> to happen. It's always going to happen. Um, I, that's maybe sort of more of a work one. I, I think on a personal level, I'm really fascinated with the concept of, of trust and, and how trust can sort of be built up over a long time, but it's something that's very easy to destroy. So, so I would say certainly trying to be better and better in life at building trust, not breaking down trust, sort of maybe as a general principle. Okay. What hard choices have you had to make that were hard at the time and were tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision in the end? I mean, I think it is fair enough at this point to sort of recognize the, some of the privilege we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. I've, I've had to have, make a lot less hard choices than many people, and, and I'm very grateful for that. I heard a talk not too long ago by an entrepreneur who went on stage to tell one of those how we hit a billion dollar kind of stories. And I think it suited him really well to start the talk by going, I am an extremely privileged individual, and sort of talked about how he through his family, et cetera, had been allowed to go to one of the best universities in the world and and didn't have to face a lot of these things and how he just thought it was worth recognizing that mm -hmm. as one of element of the founder story. So I, I think it's, I should really do the same and say pri privilege is, is certainly an element of it. In terms of hard choices, it, it doesn't, it, I think in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't feel like I've had to make a, a lot of hard choices. I, I think- Maybe they're still to come. Maybe they are still to come. Um, I think one hard choice is uh, actually these days is, is is around kids, particularly living in London, et cetera. How, how long do you wait? What, what sort of life do you give them? Do you move out of town? Do you stay in town? We all think city kids are cooler, but you know, you can give them less if you live in here. So, so I think that's certainly one thing that is very much going to come up in my life, I think, very soon. But in terms of other things, you could say that was obviously a natural, you know, deciding to leave and go and start Biblio uh, versus 
essentially carrying on a very well-paid job and career. It's obviously cost me a lot of money, um, sort of. <laughs> opportunity cost. Opportunity well, yeah. cost, I guess. It didn't seem like a hard choice at the time. It still doesn't seem like a hard choice in the sense that I didn't want to carry on with what I was doing. So I, I had to change. Okay. Um, um, where do you go and uh, or what do you do to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? It's a good question. I, I, I love walking. I, I like climbing. Climbing has this wonderful thing to sort of blank you out. Not trees. When, no, not <laughs> trees anymore, just walls. But um, as I always joke and say, it's it's very hard to think about too many complicated things when you're hanging on a wall because yeah. your body is quite there. Um, so so I think certainly for, for clearing out some of that, climbing is very good. Walking is very good for, for the thinking part of it. And then I, I have little places in the world, as, as we talked a bit about before, Recording um, Cape Town is is for me this kind of place of of serenity. I you know if I can be in the mountains climbing a trail that that's me at my happiest. Especially if there's like a mountain swim at the end of it or something. So that's certainly my happy place. I think being by the sea is certainly the other one. Okay, who are your influences or inspirations? So we've we've talked about some of them today. You know Tristan Harris, yeah. Joe Edelman. I think there's a lot. There's been some people in that space doing very good work. Um, if we go a little bit further back in time, um, I think my first really big inspiration was a guy called Jonathan Harris, uh, who's a New York based artist. Um, ten by ten. Yeah. yeah, and and some of the work he did, he did a fantastic. Well, he's done a series of fantastic projects, really. That that sort of have the attempt of yes. internet digital art artist. digital art yeah, yeah. Um, I'll put him in the show notes so he, yeah but he um he did a fantastic presentation once at a flash conference where he basically went up in front of a bunch of the world's best developers and said he didn't believe there had been any masterpieces created in the digital environment yet how all these wonderfully talented people mostly put their talents to work for corporates instead of creating real art. And it obviously caused a huge stir at the time, but I, you know, I think he was right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we can argue if there's still been any true digital masterpieces, you know, and his sort of scale was, you know, have we made a Mona Lisa? If we made anything that's going to be remembered two, 500 years from now, his answer was no, I don't think so. And, and yeah, a lot of the work he's done is, is very, 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 very inspiring. And, he had a lot on a personal level for me to say too about he he does a lot of sort of isolating himself and consciously aren't on social media and, and all of that simply to have time to do real work. So I think as I found a lot of inspiration in Jonathan Harris over the years. And every time he comes out with something new, I'm like, oh, that was the but that's amazing. <laughs> you know, he he just usually is is two, three, five years ahead of everybody else in terms of the themes he's working with. Um so yeah, if I had to consistently mention one, I think he's a good one. All right. What's your perspective on failure? Yeah, I think that's a tough one. I think one of the one of the interesting things about sort of privilege is it does bring a certain fear of failure, right? And and I think fear of disappointing. I, I'd certainly say I think I have that with me. Um, I, I'm certainly very proud in that sense that I would hate um, to to admit failure or defeat. I'm not a great loser in that sense. Um, anyone who's played board games or card games with me would say <laughs> that I'm I'm a fierce competitor. Don't lose for fun. So I think that is there for me. Yeah, certainly. I think I should be honest and, and admit that. Okay. You've talked about your inspiration. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Or what, maybe? I think the best answer there is my girlfriend, to be honest. I think it takes a person who knows you well to really challenge you and, and, and make you a better person. But I think she's very good at asking the right questions and, and sometimes ask, you know, what, what kind of person do you want to be? Really? And she also um, has another career in, in brand design, brand naming. <laughs> and she does have lots of talents. <laughs> <for that. laughs> Brand naming is one of them. No, I, I think 
you know, credit where credit's due, I, I think she's been a very good person for me in, in terms of sort of rounding some of my sharper edges and, and made me think a little bit more holistically about things. Cool. You're totally at the heart of technology and, and digital, but how do you keep up with technology? I try not to. I, I think these days a lot of it actually kind of comes to me from people who send links and, and things. It's more a question of filtering, really. Um, I think there's, there's lots of great people sharing stuff. The less time you spend congratulating people with their work anniversaries on LinkedIn, the more time you have to to try to discover real things. I have enjoyed a few of those kind of kind of bookmarking recommendation tools, things like Pocket, etc. Um, there's another one for for Chrome now that that I use. That does create the occasional sort of serendipitous experience. And I certainly would say if we were building the original version of Biblio again, I would certainly have built it as a as a Chrome plugin that can just sit in the browser and recommend you stuff. The impossible question, what would your advice be to someone just about to graduate, go into study, start up a, um, a startup like you've done yourself or have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's being told, ah, forget it, it's impossible? Well, it depends. If it's on the, on the topic of starting a startup, uh, my, I think my best advice is to sleep on it because <laughs> it's really not a decision you should take lightly. Um, I'm sitting here five years later, right? Time flies when you start. You know, certainly anything that you imagine about starting a startup when you've never done it before is going to be wrong. Uh, and I'd even seen a startup before, but but no two stories are the same. And you're going to face, you know, I think the hardest thing I've ever had to face was to try to convince a publisher to put our code on their page and and them sort of going, so could you show me some other examples of, and you go, nope, you're, I was hoping you could be the first one. <laughs> so I think, you know, starting out is really hard. And, and I spoke to a, a very... You know, at the time, I didn't re- sort of recognize the value of this advice. But I, I spoke to a guy called Marvin that I know in San Francisco, who was one of the early Yahoo guys when I was about to leave and start Biblio. And he he recommended me to read The Hesitant Entrepreneur, which is basically a book trying to convince you that it, you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I obviously just brushed it off at the time. I, I really should have read it <laughs> and listened more to him. Um, it was very good advice. I've read the book since, and I, I think I could have saved myself some some pain if I'd read that first. Generally in life, I um, if people have those kind of things, I always try to recommend them a, um, a talk which certainly had that effect on me, which is a talk called How to Achieve Your Childhood Dreams. Uh, uh, his name escapes me right now. He's a professor from Carnegie Mellon, and he was, he, they have a concept at Carnegie Mellon called The Last Lecture, which is sort of the last lecture. Yes, that it's uh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it's an incredible, the, the guy's about to die from cancer and he yeah. basically gives a talk about how to live your life and, mm-hmm. and how to not be scared of failure and, and how to live to dream to, to do the things that you wanted to achieve in life. Um, I think if anyone's feeling a little bit down or a little bit challenged in that department, they should really just spend an hour watching that. Yeah, um, it's amazing. They'll probably don't feel like that afterwards. Um, we finished with two questions. What book? Do you want us to offer listeners with the best comments in the comment section? So I think if the, if the impact of a book is measured on on how much you kind of quote and talk about it afterwards, I think Sapiens by Harari is, is going to be my... Um, I've just kept quoting and talking about things from that book since I read it. I don't think the second one was, was as good, but... Um, Homodeus. Yeah, Homodeus yeah. was, was as good. Um, Sapiens, I think you just suddenly see all the bigger threads and all the bigger lines. And I think I've, I've just used it a lot in references and conversations. And so if you haven't read that, I, we'll put that one in. Yeah. Okay. Squarely Have you read um, 21 rules for the 21st century? I haven't actually. No, not yet. I think you'll enjoy that one. Um, well, that could be my recommendation uh, for today. There then. you go then. Who should we interview next? As I said, I've, 
I, I have a lot of sort of within my domain, I think some of the people we've talked about today, be that sort of Jonathan Harris or Joe Edelman, et cetera. I think Joe Edelman in particular is a, is a very interesting individual, but that's obviously sort of carrying on this niche. Yeah. I think if you, if you, if you go a little bit broader than that, I think some on, on a personal level, some of the, the sort of things I'm most fascinated about at the moment is, is more in the kind of blockchain space and, and about what's happening there. And in particular, I think we're beginning to see applications in, in the crypto world that actually are being used. And, and I think people have spent the last sort of 12, 14 months of, you know, crypto winter or whatever you want to call it in these Game of Thrones times. They've spent them very well building out some, some really awesome technology. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a space that if I, you know, if we'd had this conversation 14 months ago, I would have, I wouldn't have said it, but now it's almost like we, we don't talk enough about blockchain again. Mm. And people have sort of talk about it as a fad, you know, now when I say, you know, I've been preaching to people the last three to six months that they should be buying Bitcoin and everyone's like that thing, you know, that died in 2017 and you sort of go, no, it really didn't. <laughs> and, you know, you will, you know, I still think it's one of those things, you know, the old Bill Gates quote, you know, one or two years, yeah. you can't see it, but on an eight to 10 year it's it's going to be the the future layer stick with ethereum and actually to be fair if someone really is gonna is gonna displace facebook and google it might come from that angle yeah, companies right. like brave i think is really the only serious challenger to to the monopoly in that sense by building it on a whole new principle okay hmm. well i'd just like to wrap up first of all say that if we're going to be living in a world um <laughs> hopefully we will in as we face potential ai armageddon um, if things go wrong, I'd like to be living the world that you build rather than the world that someone else has built. Someone else builds. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> it's indeed it is a compliment because uh, I think you are going in the right direction. Um, I'd like to acknowledge you just for your principles of trust, but I think you live an interesting work life of principle-driven business that is uh, full of passion, persistence, and instilled with creativity, and obviously your own personal curiosity has led you to a point of building a business that I think is beneficial to the world and to the industry. And I just hope other people can hear this and embrace the technologies you're building because I think it's going to create a positive impact on our society and offset the damage that's been done, albeit maybe not intentionally. But I think that as I go back to the comment I made about creating intentionality in people's online behavior, I think you're adding to that um, rather than detracting from it. So I Acknowledge you, thank you, and applaud you for what you're doing. Appreciate that. Thank, thank you very much. Okay. And um, we'll follow up next time you're in New York with a beer. Please. That'd yes. Be great. Maybe two. Do you want to mention, like, who, the people in the room? Oh, yeah. And I should, and, yeah, and I should just mention that obviously in the room today, it was Mads and myself, but also uh, Robert uh, van der Pluim. That's as close as we can get without okay, Robert being Dutch. Van der, okay, Robert <laughs> van der Pluim. And we've also got in the room here, as, uh, as always, uh, Bettina. Michele, yes. who's Italian, is uh, keeping me on the straight and narrow. And unfortunately, Elaine, um, who is normally with us, couldn't come to London because she's got commitments in New York, but will be dealing with the imagery and the videos uh, further down the line when we publish this. So thank you again and look forward to seeing you in New York. Thank you. Likewise. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, 
just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.